If you would be turning to Daniel chapter 3, and while you're turning there, let me catch you up to where we are in the book of Daniel. Um, Chapter 3 is intimately connected to the vision that Daniel had and interpreted for the dreams that King Nebuchadnezzar had had. And just to remind you, remember that one of the things that King Nebuchadnezzar saw was he saw this massive statue in the form or image of a man, and the head was made out of gold, and then it was silver, and then bronze, and then mixed with clay and iron. And, And so each of those represented the different kingdoms that will rise and will fall. And like a lot of us, King Nebuchadnezzar heard but one part of that vision, right? He, he heard the part about him being the head of gold, his kingdom being the head of gold, and how all the kingdoms that would come after him would be weaker, weaker than his. And so, like a lot of us, we hear what we want to hear, don't we? Right? Uh, it's, it's amazing to me how often um, our, our hearing is shaped by so many different things, all, all presuppositions that we already have, things that we already want to, to kind of hear. And it doesn't matter. You, you've experienced this. You've heard something one way, right? And said, no, this is exactly what you said. And they're like, no, I, I went on to say a few more things that changed that part pretty significantly. And you've also had people misinterpret what you had to say. And we all have motivations for why we hear the things we want to hear. Many of you are predisposed, as I preach, to hear certain things and to have certain words have certain meaning to you. One in particular that we've wrestled with here is the word grace. Grace doesn't mean the same thing to everyone as it turns out. For some people, grace means the license to do whatever they want now right? Grace gets them in, and, and, then it's, and then it's a free-for-all from now until Jesus comes back. Well, that's, that's not what grace is. And for some people, grace is harsher than that, actually. Grace sounds a whole lot like legalism. There's all these rules and regulations that you got to keep. And I, I know for many of you, are like, who thinks that's grace? Well, for some people, having boundaries and rules is a very gracious thing. Knowing what am I supposed to do? What can I check off? How can I know that I'm improving? Whereas God's grace is different than both of those things, actually. It is the thing that gets us into the kingdom, right? It is because of no merit within us, because of no good deed that we've done, the Lord has chosen to place his love, his affection, his promises on us and make us heirs. And then he goes even further. He he uses his grace to help us then live out what not only is pleasing to him, but will make the family bigger. See, that's the part I think that we forget. Is that east of Eden, the goal is not black and white. It's not that we would keep a list of rules and keep our salvation. No, the finished work of Christ is finished. It's done. We don't need to do anything to to keep it. What we need to do is learn how to enjoy it. And, and remember why we were redeemed in the first place, which is to help the family to grow bigger, which is very important for these first actual four chapters of Daniel. Most of the time, I think that we miss that one of the main points of the first four chapters of Daniel is that God is going after the heart of a king, not setting up some sort of of, uh, moral example for us to get wrong for centuries. And so what we're going to see is the king, if you've noticed, Nebuchadnezzar, each chapter go, comes a little bit closer. And he comes a little bit closer. And we'll see next week how close he comes. And just so you know, theologians aren't decided on whether or not we'll see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven or not. 
But that's not for us to decide. That's actually for Jesus to decide. So I'm going to leave it to him in the end. But what we see this week is Nebuchadnezzar heard that first part. Ah, kingdom of gold, stronger than all the others. And he didn't hear that there is a stone coming cut by no man's hand that will grow into a mountain and it will shatter all earthly kingdoms at long last. That's the part he didn't seem to hear because it leads him in this chapter, which most scholars think occurs about 20 or 25 years later than chapter two, because it would take some time to build and gather all the material necessary to, to, to build the gaudy and audacious thing that Nebuchadnezzar chooses to build as a testimony to the goldness of his kingdom. And in the middle of doing that, it's going to look like if you were in exile, as Nebuchadnezzar is doing what he's doing, which we'll get to in just a moment, it's going to look like it's getting worse. Because before, he didn't necessarily require worship. But now, he's going to require it. And it looks like the times are growing darker for the exiles. And it looks like it could be the end. And it looks like that maybe God has not kept his promise. And that he's forsaken his people, if we're not careful. So let me ask you before we get into the chapter, do you ever struggle with feeling like God is absent? Or that he's distant? Or that maybe he's forgotten or forsaken you? I have. I do. Right? That may seem shocking to you, um, but it shouldn't. I am not holier than thou. And if you read God's word, how does he tend to treat the ones that he calls to be apostles and prophets and teachers and that kind of stuff? Ain't no promise good end, except for when Christ returns. Between the now and the not yet, it is a mixed, mixed bag. And so there are times when it feels like, because we're such a feelings and emotions-based people, it feels like God has forsaken us and forgotten us, whether it's in the midst of uh, let's just say barrenness. Sometimes barrenness can feel like forsakenness or joblessness or homelessness or trying to make the next step transition to any of those things. It can feel like God is forsaking you or a diagnosis of some sort or the end of a relationship. It can feel like you are forsaken and that God has fled and he's no longer keeping his promises. But the good news is that that's ultimately just not true. And again and again and again, as we look back on our lives, we can see where he actually was there. He was moving all the time. We just were hearing what we wanted to hear or not hearing what we didn't want to hear. We struggle, don't we, in that regard? And so as we step into this, keep in mind that really is part of the heart of this. And what the people of God would struggle with is where is God in all this? You got to know that when that image went up, It looked like the end. And for many of us, you're wondering, as certain images are going up, is this the end? And for Christians, if it is the end, what will it be? To quote my brothers from the band Waterdeep, it will be a good, good end. For Christians, the end is always good because it means that we, to die, his gain is to go to be with Christ. Amen? We struggle with that. And so I'm not saying let's go try to do that. Let's not go try to get ourselves killed. Because Paul even says, I wrestle with this. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
right? Even he understands this. But we have to remember what the story is all about and let that help us to navigate the times. As we will see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do and see the hand of God at work, even in the raising of an image. Because in fact, what you need to know is God sovereignly allows the making of this image so he can draw a king to himself and a people be affirmed in in his promise to them. All right, so if you would turn to the text, let's look at uh, Daniel 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let me pause for just a second. Now, it sounds like maybe I'm missing my place and just reading the same thing over and over. I'm not. What is repetition in the Bible? What does it tell you? Pay attention. So who, set, who thinks he set this up? King Nebuchadnezzar, They're making, the, the point that Daniel's making writing this is all along, King Nebuchadnezzar really thinks he's the one in charge. And this is going to make uh, a lot more sense when he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God will deliver you from my hand. So King Nebuchadnezzar is all about this image. Verse 4, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image, here it is, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, so it's important that we not lose one of the key threads here, which is Genesis chapter 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, right? So this image, 60 cubits by six, is 90 feet. Any idea how big 90 feet is? It's a lot. Nine stories. That's a pretty good-sized building, depending on your town. It's nine stories high, and it's nine feet wide. Now, many wonder if this even included the base, which may have made it even larger so that more people could see it. So one of the reasons, why would you make something that large? So people could see it. Have any of you ever seen the statue of Genghis Khan? Uh, on the plains, I, I don't know why you would, but if you had, that's, it's, it's an amazing and breathtaking thing. It was meant to show anybody who came through, whose land is this? Genghis Khan's land. So why is King Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image? What is he saying? This land is my land and you are my people. Now, the image itself was probably, we don't know for sure, but probably Marduk, which was the chief Babylonian god probably wasn't necessarily Nebuchadnezzar's image. However, who, who set it up? Now Marduk, 
Nebuchadnezzar set it up. That part is clear. So this 90 by 90 foot thing is now to be worshiped, right? And so he, he wants to make sure that everyone knows that the kingdom of gold will stay. And that he doesn't care about some stone cut by no man's hand that will grow into a mountain. Let me just be clear to all of you around is what he's saying. This kingdom is here to stay. That's interesting. There's a poem called Nothing Gold Can Stay. I don't think he knew it. I don't think it was written by then. But it would have helped him a little bit, don't you think? So Nebuchadnezzar says, not only are we going to have this image, but you, you are going to worship it. And notice who he calls for first. Who is he calling for first in this group of names? All the important people. Everybody who matters. He wants them to bow first. What will that do to everybody after them? It will encourage them to bow as well. He's smart in this. And so he calls for them all around, and he says, all right, when the music starts, you will bow. And they do. So far, it seems like they all do. And what's interesting, and you don't want to miss this, that verse 7 sounds a lot like King Nebuchadnezzar has put back to right what the Tower of Babel set apart. See, the Plain of Dura is about where the Tower of Babel would have been. It's interesting how this is a repeated thing. Man keeps thinking, I can make my own God. I can decide. I can control. I am king. I don't care what you prophesy. Let me show you what I can do. And so he says, all nations, all tongues were able to come together in unison and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Don't miss that. So here it looks like God's promise is coming undone. Yet, what God is doing is allowing for a king to do something so foolish, so ignorant, that it will ultimately reveal God's glory, specifically to him even, and to all around. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, here in chapter 3, the conflict is focused on the image that Nebuchadnezzar erects. It is a symbolic representation of Babylon and the kingdom of this world. In contrast to it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are those in whom the image of God is being created. In that sense, they are God's representatives. The issue, therefore, is this. And the issue is the same for us, by the way. Will the image of God that he has made bow down to the image which man has made? Now, just so you're not thinking that, ah, where do we have, we don't have anything like this today. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. How many of you are being shaped and told who you are and what your image ought to be by culture? You don't think fashion magazines dictate and drive how we dress and what we do? How many of you currently are wearing pleated front pants? Notice I am not because it's no longer fashionable to wear pleated front pants, apparently. I loved pleated front pants for years, and I gave in, okay? So I'm an idolater to flat front pants I gave in, right? So, and notice how things kind of come and go, and the, there's a market that dictates what you can buy. How many of you have ever gone shopping for, if you have a daughter, you've ever gone shopping for clothes, and you wanted to start your own cottage industry to make them yourself because you didn't want something written on the backside of that child's clothing for everyone to read? 
why we would need to advertise there, I'm just not sure. Or so short, because like our daughter, who was built long-legged, it, it was already short to start with, and it just got worse. One of the maddest Kimberly ever got, so we bought her some shorts, and we had a friend who could take the pleats out and make them longer. Oh, man, she hated us for a long time for that. <laughs> we didn't turn them into board shorts. I mean, we're trying to find a happy medium, but there was no happy or medium, as it turned out. But you know what I'm saying? So, that, so that there's so much of the world dictated. How about relationships? How has Tinder shaped how you who are under the age of 30, if you're over 40 and you're on Tinder, I, I want to talk to you after the service. But 30 and under, how it shapes how you consider relationships, the possibilities even. Now, if you're, if you're on Tinder, that doesn't automatically mean you're out, so don't hear me say that, but it is shaping you, Right? It is, it is a cultural moray that is changing how we think about relationships. In fact, I heard two young men at the coffee shop the other day talking about how people my age um, just don't understand how relationships really work. Hmm. I was fascinated. Uh, I didn't stick around long enough to hear the conclusion, as it were. But think about it, right? We're, we're shaped too, all of us. All of us are being shaped by something in culture that dictates and says who and what we are. Some of you, your idol is to push against culture, is to stand out so that everyone notices you're different, right? There's a counter-idolatry there if you're not careful. Is the biblical story about what anybody thinks about what you are? Or is the real story what people think about what God is based on your image bearing? It got real quiet all of a sudden. But that's really the question, isn't it? It's not about, you've been set free. You've been given the single, if you're in Christ, if you're in union with Christ, you've been given the single greatest gift that anyone can ever give you and it cannot be taken away. There's nothing more for you to strive for and gain actually, which is beautiful. And yet, we continue to strive and long for man's opinion or woman's opinion or whoever's opinion. We're struggling and languishing under the weight of a burden that Christ has set us free from. Instead of us considering, no, what will they think of the Lord my God whose image I bear everywhere I go? And remember, we've said this in here before, you don't actually, there's no separate witnessing, right? Everything you do bears witness, everything. Everything you post on Facebook, everything you write, everything, how you act at the store, how you treat the waitress, how you treat the, the police officer, how you treat someone who has a different opinion than yours, how you treat your neighbor, all of it, or ignore, or, or be just, just, utterly uh, just un don't even know they're there, you're witnessing. You're telling a story with your life. And know that in this culture, if they find out you're a Christian, the grid changes, right? The lens of what they think that you are changes. It's either based on bad experiences they've had in the past, which I get that a lot, as a pastor, I'm, I'm always under the freight of, oh, you're one of those, right? And I get it, and there's nothing I can do about it except to continue to live in a way, hopefully, that displays the glory and the image of God in a way that can help to undo that generationally. 
It's not going to be easy. And same for you. They look at you, oh, you're one of those. And so how are you bearing the image? How are you helping to change the lens for the next generation of Christians so that hopefully there's a group of people who recognize us for who we were intended to be? Right? So this really is the crux of the question. You who are created in the image of God, which image do you display? And are you bowing to the image of gold or some other form, fashion, or kingdom which cannot stay? So you have to ask yourself, what are the idols that you're tempted to worship? We all have them, right? We all do. And, and they come in various forms. They're not always easy to see. It's not always like a little figurine. I think that's one of the things we have to untangle in our thinking is that idols aren't always little figurines or 90 by 9 foot things. They're oftentimes what's in your pocket, whether it's your wallet or your phone, which many of you are totally wrecked by because you can't get outside of this even so much smaller than that 90 by 99 foot thing. It's much smaller. You can't get your head out of it long enough to recognize there's a whole world out here. So much greater than that little bitty world in there. And I'm numbered among you. I, I draw lots of affirmation from my phone. It's funny, Jerry Seinfeld had this wonderful bit based on an item that we no longer have called an answering machine. And he talked about, and I used to experience this. You remember when you'd come home, if the light wasn't blinking, it meant nobody cared where you were. And nobody cared to be with you. And so there was a sense in which that little blinking light, and he, you know how comedy always has this really deep ring of truth. And he talked about that affirmation. For many of you, that's you. Your phone is your affirmation. Has anyone liked what I've posted? Has anyone responded to my Snapchat? Is anyone swiping right? Is anyone, where, where, where is my affirmation in this? You're letting this little bitty tiny world, faux world, dictate and control you. For many of you, one of the things that we've, we've talked about, we, we do want to be able to love college students well here, right? And one of the difficulties is that 60 or 70% of our church is introvert by personality type. And most of the college students, and I'm not bashing on you, don't get upset, but you stand right outside that door and you're standing on your phone in a circle, a tight circle at that, and you're all like looking down. You're like, I don't know why nobody talks to me. I don't know why nobody wants to hang out, right? I mean, you gotta throw us a bone here. We're working with 70% introverts. It's already not easy. Get out of the digital world and be present, right? But it's me too. I, I, how many times have, have I been at dinner with somebody and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Ooh, hey, <laughs> gotta respond to that. That would be funny. Oh, what were you, what were you saying? So I'm really trying to push against that and create space and margin for which that no longer is my idol and defines me, right? And you get, hey, here's a free one. You get to call me out if you're with me and I'm more in my phone than I'm present with you. Please do, that's loving me well. All right, let's turn back to the text, verses eight through 18. <coughs> Therefore, that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. 
They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. All right, so what we have here is some tattletales. It's not like King Nebuchadnezzar could see everybody who was worshiping this thing. So some folks maliciously come forward, the Chaldeans, and they say, hey, there's a group of Jews. And in fact, we just want to point out, oh, King, live forever first. Let me get that out of the way. But secondly, you put them in power. You don't think there's a subtle dig there politically? You don't think this is like Britbart before Britbart? right, at some level, right? So they're kind of digging at the king and his, his foolishness. Oh, king, live forever, but you have put some bad people in place. They don't do what you say they would do, and he's furious. Now, notice what he does, though. It's interesting. He gives them a second chance, right? He says, all right, I like you kids. You're, you, you've been fun. You've been good for me. You've, you've worked hard. I don't want to look like an idiot. So here's the deal. We're going to crank up the music again, and then you fall down and worship, and all will be well, okay? Let's just, let's just let's call it, and we'll call it even. Well and good. Right? So here he is. He knows that martyrdom doesn't help his cause. Have any of you ever read the book Silence by Shosuko Endo or Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory? In both of those books, there's priests who are deeply persecuted in both Mexico and Japan. And one of the things that they figure out is the more people they killed, the stronger the Christianity grew. Right, well, this ain't working. So they said, ah, I figured out what we'll do. We'll make the leaders apostatize. In Mexico, in the power and the glory, what they did is made them marry a woman, which made them, made them renounce their vows and live in town in this new family that revoked all that they believed, in a sense. And it worked like a charm. The church died. In Japan, they had them step on this image. It was a wooden image that was bronzed of Christ. Or, for whatever reason, and kind of coming to understand the reason, the Japanese also had them step on the Virgin Mary. They have a very feminine view of God. 
because most mothers were much nicer than most Japanese fathers. And so they would have them stomp on this thing. All you got to do is just stomp on it. It's an image called a fumi-e. And they did. And they would have the, the leader stomp on them and then wear traditional Buddhist priestly dress. And so the church began to die all the way to less than 1% in Japan now. So Nebuchadnezzar knows, I don't want to kill you kids outright. I kind of like you. You've been good for business. Let's just do this thing, right? Now, what's interesting is how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond given their circumstances. You got to kind of imagine them going, save the band, bro. There ain't nothing left to talk about. We don't need a third chance. We don't even need your second chance. We're not going to do what you're asking us to do. The God who you question whether or not he can deliver us from your hand, oh yes, he can. But there's no guarantee that he will. He may not. In fact, our death may actually bring him more glory than us living. We receive. Regardless of what you do, we will not violate commandments one, two, and three. We will not bow to another image. We will not um, take the Lord's name in vain. We have not taken on his name such so that we could worship a foreign God. No, we take very seriously our original names. Thank you very much. And no, no, we will not fashion an image and participate in any of that. So you got to understand they're being asked to violate the first three very critical commandments of what they're being asked to do. Now, some of us think, come on, man, just do what he says and then go back to doing your own thing. Nobody really notices you anyway. But see, God does. And that's the thing I think we don't have an appreciation of is what God sees when we think no one else is watching and how that affects him and even more so us as we relate to him. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not demanding that God do anything, if you notice. They're actually just saying, here's what he can do, here's what he might do, but here's exactly what we're going to do regardless because of how good he's been. Now, how is it that you think these young men got to a place where they could do this? They came in exile as teenagers, probably 14, 15-year-olds. How do you think it is that they had such a strong understanding of faith given they've spent the last 20, 25 years studying Babylonian culture? Parents, the answer lies with you. See, their parents, their community, and the answer lies with the church as well, had to have trained them up in the things of the Lord. Had to have emboldened them with some sort of catechesis and understanding of who God is and what all of this means. So they had a rich and robust understanding of the story coming into exile. Where are you now? And where are you sending your children and what have you done to help them grow? And what are we doing to help them grow? That's not an accusation as much as it, is, as it is an encouragement to you. This matters. They've done studies that show that kids who have grown up in catechized circumstances survive the idolatry that is the public university. Any of you see the video of the purple-haired professor tearing down the 9-11 signs? and screaming, right? My daughter sent us a picture of one of her professors. It's 
it is, it is the wild, wild west. I get it. I love, and by the way, I love the university. And I would stay in school all the time if I could because I love that environment. I love being challenged. I'd love to get a PhD from Emory and have them tell me how stupid I am every day. Right? It'd be awesome. I don't know why that's awesome. Maybe I'm sick, broken, and need Jesus. But these young men recognize, no, it is not that we fear the one who can kill the body only. No, it is, it is that we recognize and submit to the one who can kill body and soul. It's just Matthew 10. Right? Think about Peter and James and John when they bring them in and they've been, they've been evangelizing on the Solomon's portico. That's basically the front porch of the place that says other than God is God. Right? So they're evangelizing in one of the toughest places possible. They bring them in. They smack them around and say, all right, now quit that. We don't want to have to kill you. And what do they say? Thank you so much. We were so scared. Thank you. We'll, we'll do exactly what you said. No, they say, they say, not with arrogance, by the way, but they say, no, we, we, we can't obey man and not obey God. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing here. They're saying, listen, king, we know you're king. We got it. We know where we are. We're not confused. Save the band. We're not doing it. And we love you, but we, we, we also love God more than we love you. Right? And so, listen to what Brian Chappell says. I think this is very practical, and this is very important. I would encourage you to take this quote and take some time this Sabbath Lord's Day, and even some time this week, just to, just to mull over it. Because he gives kind of three things um, that, that is happening here for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we can apply. Listen to what he says. By their example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lay out a simple plan. Simple, I think, is kind of a little off. But yeah, a simple plan of action to help us faithfully confront the trials we face. Number one, we acknowledge our needs without stipulating how God should or will respond. Right there, many of us trip. We come to God saying, hey, here's exactly what I want to do. And if you're wicked like me, you would quote to me right now, well, you, well, you don't have because you don't ask. Right? Is that what that verse means? You don't have because you don't dictate? No, that's not what it says. You don't have because you're asking for a lot of the wrong things. If you were to ask for the actual things that are near to the heart of God, he longs to give us good gifts, not bad gifts. He's not going to give you something that's going to take you further from him. So often, we just don't understand how what we're asking for is only going to carry us away and not nearer. So when he says no, it is always for our good. So we would do well to know the scripture well, to know his promises well, so that we know even what we're asking for when we do ask. But here, as Brian Chapel points out, it's good to not come with stipulations. Number two, we humbly acknowledge the ability of God either to meet our needs in the way that we desire or in a way that he knows better. That's the part that I think we also have got to get. He does know better. Right? He created everything. You who are but a blip in the whole scheme of things, a grain of sand on the beach, not to overly reduce you because he does love you and you do bear his image. But in the scheme of things, do we understand even a glimpse or a portion of the sweep of history? Do we really understand what's going on exactly in the world right now? Because you've read a couple of articles on HuffPost. No knock on HuffPost. Some of it's good. 
Right? I mean, do we really? We watch some stuff on the History Channel? I got this. I watch a documentary on Netflix. I'm, I'm, I'm like an expert. I don't know why people aren't calling me to talk to me about it. That's not to say we can't have some understanding because the Lord does grant discernment, but we should always, with great humility, bear that kind of burden of knowledge and recognize that it's not about us. He knows better because he knows more, because he knows all of it from beginning to end. Third, we commit ourselves to uncompromising obedience, whatever comes. We simply obey God and trust him to take care of the circumstances. That's tough sometimes. And, and so often, we don't, we don't, we're not doing that in community to get help from people. So often, this is what's maddening pastorally. So I'm asking you, don't do this. We would much rather work with you and counsel you at the beginning of an issue than at the end when you've already decided what the circumstances are. And you just want us to affirm your bad decision. Right? It is so much easier at the beginning of a marriage beginning to teeter and totter than at the end when both parties have already decided they don't care what God thinks and they dang sure don't care what the church thinks. And they don't care what the Bible says and they don't care what anybody says. Their decision's already made. They're just looking for someone to affirm one or the other so they can get what they want in the divorce. That's but one example. There's lots like that. I worked in addiction for years and years and years. And I begged guys, don't call me after you've relapsed. Do, but call me when you're thinking about relapsing. So much easier to work on that front end than after you've made up your mind and you're asking me to help clean up the pieces. I'll do that too. But let's, let's begin to actually practice what Scripture calls us to practice and love one another and help each other in this. Some of why we don't ask is because we're afraid of judgment. Again, our previous church experience has taught us. Uh, you you go, go to those guys, and they're going to take the guy's side every time. You go to those guys, and they're going to they're they're always quote something esoteric. It's always, always going to be lose-lose. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Try us. If we prove it, Tell everybody you know and shrink the church. Right? Get them away from us because we're dangerous. If we would not be biblical. If we would not always side with the image and glory of God and God's true grace. But you don't know if you don't try us. All right. So, Brian Chapel, I think, sums that up really well. And it's something we need to think about. So here's the question for us. What are you most concerned with preserving when faced with a difficult circumstance? This shows you where your heart is. This reveals the depths of your heart. Always, in a difficult circumstance, if your first priority is save you. Save your face. Save your personality. Well, that ain't good. If it's all about your preservation... And the question in a difficult circumstance is, okay, how can this bring glory to the Lord? Then we're off. You're already off. Something for us to chew on. Let's look at the conclusion of the chapter and what happens. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed 
against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually is heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the fiery furnace was heated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Let me pause for just a second. Notice it says his face was changed. See, he tried. He tried. Come on, guys. Let's just let's cue the music. Let's just do this thing because I like y'all. And then when they were like, no, save it. We're done. We're done talking. He immediately becomes furious and he has it heated up such that you got to know what he wants. He wants there to be no shred of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on this earth, period. He wants them destroyed from the earth. Now, don't you think it would have been curious when they opened the fiery furnace and it killed the mighty men, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are thrown into the furnace don't die immediately? Wouldn't that have been the first cue? Hey, some may write. Some may write. Again, what we see from Psalm 97, no, the fire comes from the Lord and will destroy his enemies. That was the first clue that this wasn't normal. It goes on. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, okay. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So what we see is the Lord is present with his people. And this is, in essence, the, the pre-incarnate Christ as we would know him present with the people. And he is protecting them. And he's also showing the king, I killed the three men you put near the furnace, but I've yet to deal with you. There's still time. And showing who it is that is truly sovereign. These men are unbound and unhurt. And he is with them in the midst of this furnace. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. I tried like crazy to get Josh to sing that song. He just won't do it. If you're familiar with the, I will walk through the fire. Okay. Yeah, that's probably why he wouldn't do it. Because my version of it is so grating and irritating at the office. He's like, I don't, I don't want to turn that loose on the people. That's like fiery furnace type stuff. So King Nebuchadnezzar sees four men in the midst of the furnace. And not only him, but all of his gathered people, right? So this is actually a testament to them as well. Here they have worshipped this, this 90 by 9 foot image. And now they're seeing something real. He goes on, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar came round to the door of the burning fiery furnace. And he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Notice who he doesn't ask to come out. That fourth man. You can stay. I want to talk to the other three. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Notice the same group that gathered to worship the other thing now gathered to see what it looks like for someone to be obedient to the Most High God. He goes on, it says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside 
the king's command, notice that language. He just set it aside. He let everyone else obey it, but he did for them, he set it aside. He's not there yet. And he yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now notice, he doesn't bow to this God yet, right? All he does is say, all right, this God seems legit, so we'll just include him in our pantheon of gods in Babylon. It's cool. Anybody who says anything bad about him, lay him to waste. That way he don't lay us to waste, right? So he just, it's as if he's still thinking in terms of sacrificial offerings. He doesn't yet get what he's dealing with. And so the God who keeps the promise of Isaiah 43, who says that when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Now see what we oftentimes take that to mean is deliverance, but we're not always delivered, are we? There are many missionaries whose graves are in foreign lands he was with them in the fire, but they didn't come out the other side in this world. They came out the other side in the world to come. So be careful as to how we apply this. So here's the question that I would have for you, and again, worthy of your consideration this Sabbath day, something to talk about in your family, but how has God been faithfully present with you amid a difficult circumstance? Where has God been there when you didn't even know he was there? As you look back, you recognize how good he really is and how present he really is. In fact, what's interesting for me is as, a believer, as I became a believer, I recognized God was there when I was an unbeliever, right? One of the things I tried to do was absolutely destroy myself with alcohol and lots of other vices. And I got a job with a guy who was paralyzed from the neck down and I had to work every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. It's just tough to get people to go out on Tuesdays. You're just admitting you're an alcoholic at that point. You might as well just go straight to AA, right? And so every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I watch reruns of In the Heat of the Night, which I hate, by the way, and Golden Girls, which was hilarious about the first 20 seconds. B. Arthur, I get it. God rest her soul. But he was preserving me in the shadow of a man who had been decimated. And who showed me the goodness of God every time I went in and worked with this man, doing things that no human being should have to do to another human being to preserve them. And God, for years, kept me, even when I didn't want to be kept, even when I didn't want him near. And so many of you have stories that you could tell as well. And how often are those stories actually helpful and links to bring other people into the family and to draw them near to us as well? Remember, your story is not just for you. It is not just your own, and it's worth telling. Even if you don't have some extravagant story, isn't it evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of God that you would grow up all of your days knowing that Jesus loved you? Not racked with doubt and, and struggling with depression and struggling with suicide? That's my story, not Susan's. Susan's story is he, she grew up all her days knowing God loved her. I would trade it. I don't think it's silly or less worthy we would never ask Susan to get up and tell her story because it isn't sexy enough. No, it is the most sexy story. I don't know why I'm using that term, but stay with me. It is, <laughs> it is much more worthy 
that God was so faithful to let her know all of her days of his goodness and not wrestle as I so often do and have to pause and say, is this, what, what, what are we even doing? And have Susan remind me because she's got this, this wealth of God's promises and faithfulness behind her. Many of you are like that. We need each other. So what do we get from Dan, Daniel chapter 3? One, the world seeks to get God's people to worship their idols and be shaped into their image. You've got to know this. The principalities and powers, they're not neutral because you becoming a consumer of theirs is what they want, right? You help keep the program going. And so what are the ways in which you're being shaped? You need to consider that. Two, God's sovereign faithfulness empowers us to keep the first three commandments by faith. You don't have to bow, actually. It is not gravity. It's not the way it is. It's just not just for this generation. It's not antiquated. No, it's true. Three, God's, God will be with his people in difficult circumstances, and he will always use that to draw other people to himself. And what we're going to see is he's drawing Nebuchadnezzar closer and closer and closer. Ian DeGuid says this, Trials provide the context in which the faith of believers shines with unmatched clarity before the eyes of a watching world. As 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 makes clear, it is precisely in the furnace that the reality of our faith is displayed most clearly. Yet, in the midst of those trials and difficulties, the Lord promised that his people could count on his presence with them, ensuring that their trials would not utterly overwhelm them or be in vain. 